and culinary listeners from around the world. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And uh, whether you're uh, shut down for COVID or you're um, uh, snowbound uh, or if everything's carefree and wonderful, we think you'll like today's program, starting with one of my new favorite companies, Four Star Seafood. We're going to be talking to the founder, Adrian Hoffman, uh, who is uh, just a delight, and the products are wonderful. And then we're going to move on to a rather thoughtful book called Feeding the People, the Politics of the Potato. Well, let's do Adrian first, right? Adrian Hoffman with Four Star Seafood is up first. Yes, well, we're going to be talking to, as I've said before, my my latest best new friend, Adrian Hoffman of Four Star Seafood, which is a spectacular seafood uh, specialty provider out of San Francisco. And uh, Adrian, your, your website um, announces prominently that you are a chef, it's chef curated, it's chef supervised. Could you give us a little bit about your background? I mean, you you started cooking at a young age, I understand. Yeah, absolutely. I started cooking when I was 13 um, in professional kitchens and put myself through kind of high school and college cooking and then uh, got into some restaurants where it seemed like it was more it was it was something more than a job and uh there's a lot of attention to detail and wonderful things going on in some kitchens and uh and it changed my perspective on it and I decided to pursue it as a career I had a lot of fun uh learning and traveling and and kind of understanding what makes food wonderful and and restaurants work and uh you know fast forward a whole bunch of years and five and a half years ago uh um, a colleague of mine and I were sitting down for dinner and thinking about how we can uh, think about what was next. And now you're originally we, from Boston, you said, which is a, a natural right. affinity yep. for for rough seafood, and uh, you you've worked in various places um, domestically um, at New York um, abroad. Uh, London, um, you've traveled, and that's what chefs are supposed to do, and you did it. So you you have a lot of experience under your belt. Um, but your your seafood company actually um, was geared to professional clients, customers. And then mm-hmm. I guess you might say that the bottom fell out when COVID hit. And most of those restaurants were closed. So that's where we're picking up. We're talking to um, a friend. First of all, you decided that the quality of seafood you were experiencing um, was not as fresh as it could be in other restaurants. And then you experienced the fallout of COVID and understood that your market had to be bigger than restaurants since the restaurants were closed. Tell us about that transition. Yeah, so, um, you know, we, we kind of saw, saw the writing on the wall as cities like Boston closed for shelter-in-place first, and, um, you know, we really had to think about what was going to happen. And so we, we anticipated shelter-in-place 
getting called soon for San Francisco. This is the very beginning of March, of course. And we decided that the, the, only, the only outlet where we could, you know, I, and we thought people would really enjoy it was to provide uh, the same quality of food that we provide to the Michelin-starred restaurants and others yeah, around Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's a step back area. now. And we need to step back a little here um, to explain that how you set up having the top quality seafood available and tell sure. us about the system of restaurants procuring seafood and what you did to change the game, which you did. Right. So we, we started off, this is five and a half years ago, and we went down to Half Moon Bay, which is about 25 minutes south of San Francisco, right? And there's a their commercial fishing port. So we, we started walking around and making friends with the fishermen and, and you know, the, the quality of the stuff that they brought in was is world class. Um, and we were like, I don't understand how come at the restaurant level it's so hard to get seafood that's of this really pristine quality. And it turns out that seafood changes hands many times before it ends up on the restaurant. And there's this concept of uh, first in, first out, where you, you have to sell your oldest stuff first. So if you have, every time it changes hands, you have another person or company that has to run through their older inventory first. By the time they get it at the restaurant level, you know, it, it could easily be a week and a half old. And that's not necessarily too much, depending on the kind of fish, but it's also not ideal. So what we said is, well, how about we buy the fish directly from the fishermen and we deliver it to the restaurants and quite often we deliver it in the same day. So uh, we started doing that. We bought, um, you know, our calling card was really, we met this guy named Pete the Greek down in uh, Half Moon Bay and he went out with a small net and he, he wrangled sardines. And so he would net catch a bunch of sardines and then keep them alive. And most of them were used for bait. So we said, well, you know, there's nothing better than a, a freshly dispatched sardine. And, uh, and so we bought his live sardines and delivered them to restaurants as our calling card, um, you know, literally hours later. And, and people were really blown away. I don't think it was, it was often that people saw fish that was that fresh, and especially sardines. It's, it's like a true gift when it's, when it's less than 24 hours oh, out of the water. Oh, and they're so different. It's a different animal <laughs> fresh right, sardines huh? right, right. Yeah. any of that fishiness that people associate with with silver skin fish like sardines doesn't show up and for for after the first 24 hours so uh being able to deliver those the those beautiful almost live sardines to people was really uh a bit of a revelation so um so yeah we started with that and it seemed to resonate really well and the the concept of chefs selling to other chefs um you know, if I we were our customers before we are now the vendors and suppliers. So uh-huh. uh, you know, a lot of a lot of seafood companies focus on the the big the big money items, the salmon and the halibut and the yeah. you know sole and scallops, and and they're wonderful, wonderful fish. But there's so much more out there, and so what we try and do is bring kind of like you know we we obviously sell all of that too, but. But we also bring in wonderful fish like turbo and there's and all these um and and great fish from the northeast where where I have a lot of roots 
and even fish out here that you don't see all the time, like ocean whitefish and and Pacific sheep's head. When we, whenever we have those, they do really well because it's oh, uh, sheep's head. It's nobody ever has that. It's wonderful fish. It is. It is. I don't know if you've ever seen the the west. I know there's a east coast and a west coast version of sheep's head. The one out here is really uh, striking looking. It's 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 four colors. I think it's black. It's a bright, a dark black, a bright red, and a white um, really? kind of belly. It, it's it's just it's very striking. I guess three colors. It's mainly uh, the ones yeah. I've had are south uh, or really, southeast. It's really like funny. Yeah. We, we, we were in Charleston, South Carolina, at a fine seafood restaurant there, and uh, we we one of the fish that the chef recommended was sheep's head, and and he said I, the, the guy over there. <laughs> sitting at the bar is where I got it from. His name is. Nice. What, what is what, what was his I, name? I remember his name, but anyhow, Dig, he. Digger, Digger Dave, I think. Cut. Well, I think people should go on your your website and and just look at the varieties if they have any idea um, of all you have to offer. It's um, for. Spelled out f o u r star seafood dot com, and uh, I, it's amazing all the, the seafood that you offer. So yeah, it was Clamor Cl- Dave was the guy in Charleston. Clamor Dave, Clamor Dave, Clamor Dave. Dave. He, he yeah. wouldn't he wouldn't tell anybody where he got his food from, where he got his fish from. No. <laughs> <laughs> Ever, you know, fishermen are very protective about their fishing grounds. He's They'll share it with like secretive. a close group of uh, buddies, but. Yeah, like, like morel mushrooms, nobody will tell you either. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so now, um, how do do you go about ordering this, and how is it shipped? So we um, we ship cross country. Uh, there's a for shipping anywhere outside of California. It's a hundred dollar flat rate, but then you pay the same prices for the fish and and produce and cheese and meats and all that kind of thing that that our customers do locally. So the prices don't change depending on where you're at. It just costs money to ship it out of state. So um, you really go online and we, we have completely compostable packaging and insulation and and bags that the, the seafood and other things are packed in and we'll pack it up and ship it. Everything gets shipped FedEx overnight if there's perishable items in it. And, um, yeah, we're, we're shipping quite a bit around the country these days. And you say, actually, I mean, you actually get the fish that morning before you ship it, right? Yeah, so within, uh, you know, it depends on what it is. So some things, uh, when, like, for example, just this morning we landed a black cod boat that had just come in, so all of our orders for black cod today were filled with fish that was less than 24 hours old. We landed... Uh, white sea bass today and halibut today. So all of this fish is is really as fresh as you can possibly get. And uh, all of our orders going out today will get exactly that fish. And we, you know, we don't hold on to a large inventory of anything. So nothing that we ever ship out is more than a few days out of the water. I mean, with now, it, I guess you, with, you, with some exceptions, there are some fish that age better than others. But um, there, there. Yeah. What about the seasonal thing? We interviewed somebody that said, well. You know, in certain seasons, um, they they buy local, and then when that season's gone, 
it's the opposite season in South America, so that's where they go and they purchase their, their uh, product there. I mean, do you do that? So, so it depends on what the item is. Everything uh, West Coast, like we're, we are also very used to the seasons, and what we try and do is as, as little as possible, we're trying to bring things in from, uh, unless it's a very special product, we're not doing a lot of importing. Like we do, we import our tuna because we think the tuna that we can get from like the Maldives and Seychelles is better than what uh, is available locally in terms of yellowfin tuna. The <clears throat> we, we also import like Aura King salmon from New Zealand, which is a wonderful sustainable product with like, it's very easy to cook and it's a high fat content and it's good raw. And with what is uh, and raw as well as cooked, it's, it's a kind of salmon. king salmon. They've really figured okay. out like how to do it sustainably. Um, so it's a as w- during the summer we we are landing our own boats with hook and line caught king salmon, local California king salmon, all summer long. And off season, we both have a. Uh, well, I guess we we really try and steer everybody to Aura King salmon, which uh, we think is a great product. Have you tried the sea trout from Australia? Oh, the Tasmanian Tasmanian, the Tasmanian trout sea from Australia. Yeah. Yep, we do. We bring it in every now and then. It's very, very good. Yeah, and now I mean, some of the items um, you have on your website are smoked. I mean, do you deal with small smokehouses, or what do you? There's such a difference in smoked fish between, like, we loved um, getting smoked fish in Cornwall and. Mm-hmm. Which is where Peter's brother lives, and I mean it's it, it was always so good, and you couldn't get anything that lightly smoked or that sensitive right. here. Yeah, so we uh, we work with a local smokehouse. We do, and we we send the fish that we have. So, uh, for example, it's been very popular. We uh, we have a relationship with a caviar company, and they take their big. 80 to 100 pounds sturgeon and bring it here to do the extraction to pull out the eggs. Really? In exchange, in exchange, we buy the the sturgeon meat, which is really wonderful as it's um, because in order to make really great caviar, you have to purge the fish very well. So you, you can't let the fish swim too close to the bottom where it keeps processing like mud and these sort of things from... Uh, just through their system because it actually gives like the the eggs and the meat a very muddy flavor. So this fish that we get that's uh we're you know caviar sturgeon is just so clean. It's a wonderful high end fish, and we're able to offer a very good deal on it because of our relationship with the caviar company. Now, where, well, how where, can you where, keep the so, fish from swimming too low to the bottom? That's grown where? outside of Sacramento. Oh, okay, all right. Um, and then we, we take that fish and we send that to a smokehouse um, and portion it into one-pound pieces. And the smokehouse just does a terrific job. You know, I, I don't really love fish that's too sweet or, or overly smoked. And so I think it's really right. a perfectly balanced kind of light, light sweet and light, uh, very light smoke that it's, it's just wonderful. Well, you know, and that's available um, on our website all the time. We... Uh, we went in, um, on the west coast of Ireland. We went to a wonderful smokehouse. What was the name of that, Robin? Con- Con- Connemara Smokehouse. Connemara hmm. Smokehouse. Do you know them? So I don't, but I'm, I'm going to look them up after we're done. Oh, please do. I mean, it was fabulous stuff. Guys, it's fantastic. a family business. 
started, you know, we just started importing a Goldstein smoked salmon right out of London, actually. Last week we, we put it on our list. But it's, a, it's terrific. It's a, an old Jewish family in London. They've been doing it for 120 years, I think. Really? And, uh, yeah, and it's, it's dynamite. What, and, you know, it's really interesting because our customer base is so cool right now. They, uh, there was somebody, one of our, our best customers recommended we try this. And so I said, you know what, I, this person cooks wonderful food at home, and they're always posting their pictures of what they've made with our, our seafood. And it looks professional, even though they're not a professional chef. So I said, I'm going to take her word from it. And I placed an order, and I found, you know, I, I imported a box of this smoked salmon from, from London. It's called Goldstein's, and, uh, and it is dynamite. Really, really great. So uh, we're very happy well, place, for those relationships. To, the place you want to go in Ireland is called, as I mentioned, Connemara Smokehouse. If you, if, you any, if you have any difficulty, just just give us a call and we'll we'll find their email address for you. The father Very cool. started, Thank you. father started the business. His son is now running the business, and he's in the process of training his his son how to do what it is he does. And oh, he, that's exciting. He's so, he's so particular. He he said every fish that comes in here, I he see. touches. <laughs> It's wow. it good and stuff. It, and, it, and if it's not up to the standard of my eyes, it doesn't it doesn't get processed. Right. Well, there are all these wonders, these gems around the world. You know, just how do you feel about um, do you have any blanket um, policy or, or point of view on farmed fish and shellfish? On farmed fish, I, I think farmed fish is is frankly necessary. Um, some, a lot of the natural stocks get depleted and there are the, the range of farm seafood is, you know, it goes from terrible, which we would never consider bringing in here to ex- like extremely well done. And, and a lot of attention to the sustainability of the, the fishery and then the natural fishery right. that accompanies it, um, you know, people people consume a lot of fish in the world, and and it probably is a good thing that so there are there are producers of farmed seafood that are that care, that care, and it, and sometimes it just makes more sense to go with farm fish than than depleting the wild population more. You know, we used to get when John Rowley was alive, he used to send us regular shipments from a Taylor shellfish in Seattle. No, it's and so good. It it was a fabulous product. Yep. Yep. They the, do a great job. We we actually book, work with them. Oh, do you? You remember the, you remember the the book that was about like they said there were only three kinds of fish that were going to survive, and they were all going to be farmed. Sea bass was one, and salmon was another, and I forget I forget what the third one was. And so he he wrote a book and said essentially said exactly what you just said. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's important right now, and it's important that people do it conscientiously. Uh, there are some there are some farms that aren't reputable that we wouldn't work with, uh, but there's quite a few. And the one the farm I was talking about in New Zealand, like has you know their green light on the Seafood Watch uh, sustainability list. It's as good as you uh-huh. can get. So we feel very good about working with them. Now the other products you have, uh, we haven't really said how extensive that is, but. Um 
Wow. I mean, <laughs> I could probably spend hours just reading your website with your list of, of what's available. Tell us about some of those items. Yeah, sure. So, well, this is what happened was when COVID hit and we decided to go online, we, you know, we've been chefs our whole careers. So we called up all of our old connections. We called farmers, our local farmers, and we called ranchers. And, you know, I called my friend Jonathan at Bobling Dairy in New Jersey. And, and we just started bringing all of this stuff in because we figured, you know, we're, we're chefs and we loved cooking with this. And I think that the public and, and frankly, other chefs would enjoy it as well. So that's, uh, that's really how it started. And now we, you know, we go to the farmer's market uh, three times a week and we load up and we, we, that, that very same stuff is what we ship out every day. So it's kind of a, a cool thing for people around the country too who are, you know, getting into more of the winter season. We're still, you know, lots of wonderful stuff is being harvested in California that uh, we can get you overnight. And the great thing about it is you do all the work, right? <laughs> so yeah, you, sure. you do all the work. So the, the, box, the box shows up and you, you empty it and you decide how much of it you're going to eat tonight. <laughs> Did you tell us about how you package things so that, like, say, if I've been paying a flat fee to have it chipped, I want to get as much as I can in that shipment, right? But you can't eat it all when it comes, if it's fresh. So tell right. us about your freezer packaging and stuff. So, so our kind of rule of thumb is for our for our customers: if you're going to consume the the fish that we send you within three days, open up the package and let it, uh, and then wrap it wrap it in paper towel and let it kind of dry out until you're ready to either serve it raw or cook it. And either way, it's going to make it a better uh, better mouthfeel. Um, it really is. It's nice to take some of the sort of natural waters out of the fish and let it. It'll, it'll be a little bit more concentrated and the, the texture firms up a little bit. And if you're not going to eat it within three days, then it's totally fine to just take the package that it comes in, put it in your freezer until you are ready to, ready to defrost and, um, and cook it. So uh, that, our rule of thumb is within three days, wrap it in paper towel. If you plan to eat it three days or longer, just take the package the, the, exactly the way we send it to you and put the pieces in the freezer. Wow, do you think that... It, it's ever going to go back when when the restaurants start opening up again? Are you going to be able to handle both uh, markets? Yeah, I mean we were halfway there until a few days ago, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> there there was, um, you know, restaurants had, they had been in, at twenty five percent capacity for indoor dining here, and then they announced that they were going to go to fifty, but pulled back before that happened, yeah. and now they've they've shut down even outdoor dining, so. You know, it's a tough decisions for everybody, but uh, but yeah, we'll continue to do this. You know, even after we're past this crazy pandemic, and um, we really we've really enjoyed the relationships we've made with our new customer base, and we're having a lot of fun doing you know seafood plus. <laughs> um, you know, we've do, we have a huge walk-in, and now it's evenly divided between seafood and all kinds of other things like really. You know, we, we carry the most amazing quail from Wolf Wolf Ranch out in Vacaville. We have uh, Flannery Beef, who does a tremendous job. Um, Do you know about Jamison Farms? Do you know Jamison Farms? Jamison Farms. Oh, I Farms. Jamison Farms, yes. Yeah, oh, wonderful. Yeah, they're, they're good friends of ours. 
Yeah, we, 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 get we, just, we just finished up four lamb shanks just the other day. Oh. <laughs> Delicious. Well, there's so many great producers that it's it's wonderful to know that there's somebody who really understands food, um, a chef who understands food and understands the excitement of preparing it all, and 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 you you make it all, you share it with all of us. So let's give that website one more time, Adrian. It's, yep, it's uh, uh, it's go ahead. Go ahead. You, you, it's yours. <laughs> it, it's fourstarseafood.com, and that's all spelled out, F-O-U-R-S-T-A-R-S-E-A-F-O-O-D.com. And the great, what, the, what's the best thing? The best thing of all is he comes to your doorstep without, without, without you doing anything other than placing your order. Yep, well, everything is I love it. I'm, I'm enjoying um, shopping on your website. So, anyhow, thank you for taking the time to talk to us, Adrian. Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Back and uh, as I promised, next up we have feeding the people the politics of the potato, and we're going to be talking to the author Rebecca Earl, who is a thorough researcher. You bet. Yeah, <laughs> I forget how many pages. I think I mentioned in the interview of footnotes, yeah, but you never knew there was so much to know about the potato. The interesting thing is that he he teaches at Warwick. University, yeah, but, but it's it, in the U.S. It would be Warwick, W-A-R-W-I-C-K. The interesting thing is the most celebrated denizen of of Warwick is undoubtedly William Shakespeare. Oh, <laughs> uh, did he eat potatoes? Probably. probably. No, no, because potatoes hadn't arrived from the new new world yet. Oh, that's right. That's right. So there you go. So, that's right. so, so. Potato didn't start to dominate uh, the diet of many people around the world until the seventeenth, uh, eighteenth century, really. I think. Was it the, back the, with Columbus? Yeah, but the potato famines, which were so celebrated in, in sad in England, were at, or in Ireland, were actually in the eighteen forties and eighteen yeah. fifties. But they they would have been fifteenth century introduced to Europe. Anyway, anyway, yeah, let, well, let's 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 do that. Let's do that. Rebecca Earl, um, how did you know when you wrote this book, Feeding the People, that potatoes are my favorite food? Well, they're everybody's favorite food. <laughs> so it's like I, good know people don't, I know people don't like them, and they they've not always been popular. Um, you give a pretty uh, good rundown here of how, well, it's subtitled The Politics of the Potato. And so that's basically what you're dealing with. Um, you know, we've been to the uh, Potato Museum in um, in uh, Peru. Ah. They're, have you been there? Have, I haven't. Oh, yeah. oh, they, oh, they potatoes like you wouldn't believe. They have a real public education program, too, so you could arrange to go 
I was on a media tour at the time, uh, and uh, and they have they have all five thousand varieties of potatoes. Something like fifteen thousand, I think they had. They said fifteen thousand, whatever. And they have and they have seeds. Who who knew that a potato grows from a seed? Well, well yeah, there are the, yeah there are these things called true potato seeds. I think they're called. What took you to Peru? You said you were on a media trip. Oh, uh, we were yeah we were uh, covering a, 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 a media tour for um, food writers and, and reviewing restaurants, and they were giving out the awards. The, we covered the world's um, fifty best restaurants, and they were doing the fifty best restaurants in um, Latin America. And so we were there, and so they hosted us on a tour to, and did everything. It was a very exciting trip. That sounds wonderful. I mean, Peru has such a, I mean, it's got a, particularly Lima, I guess, has such a high reputation for oh, the food is fabulous, absolutely fabulous. The only thing was that um, we never got to Machu Picchu. We had a full schedule, and the last uh, time we planned a trip, um, to uh, Machu Picchu, the, the railroad, the only way of getting there got washed out by a storm. <laughs> so yeah, I I've taken that to. railroad. It's a lovely yeah. ride. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, well, 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 we, was, this. we was we were supposed to be on it, but it didn't go. Oh well. <laughs> no, I mean you you are a, um, head of the history department at the University of Warwick. That's right. And, um, of course, we, we latched on to this book right away because it's University of Cambridge Press, which is Peter's alma mater. <laughs> yeah, I saw that like, when I was looking up the, about your program. I saw you, Peter, you have, a, you have a degree in geography, I think it was. I do. I do. Yeah, geography. <laughs> class, class, that class was of, a long time ago. Class of um, 1963. Well, that's no, a good subject. Tell me <laughs> yeah, this. I think so, too. Rebecca, about this book. Um, first of all, with all, all of your previous books, they, they always had sort of like a, um, a, a Latin American um, bent to it. That's I mean, true. I came to I came to potatoes through Latin America. Uh huh. I mean, what there's so many as you point out towards the end of your book. Uh, you point out you could do the same kind of tracing of a history, a cultural eating history, political history, using any other food, or not every, any other food, but other foods. Uh, what made you land on the potato? Well, I think I've been interested in potatoes for a long time. It's partly because they come from this very specific part of the world, and they come from really from the Andes. Although, I mean, there is some recent scholarship that shows that people in Utah were eating potatoes you know, 10,000 years ago. So I think potatoes, I mean, really originate from all along the line of mountains that runs up from the Andes all the way through the Rockies. But, I mean, they're mostly the, the heartland, the cradle area, as, as scientists call it, of, of potatoes is, is the Andes. But they're now everywhere. There is not a country in the world that doesn't grow potatoes. Everybody eats them. Everybody thinks they're ordinary. So we've got no, very the Chinese. You mentioned something about the Chinese uh, only recently came to potatoes. Yeah, I mean, they're now the world's largest producer and consumer of potatoes. No kidding. Isn't that amazing? Which is kind had, of surprising. I've never had a Chinese potato dish. 
Oh, yeah, that's we don't think of it as a particularly Chinese food, but in fact that you know they 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 grow and eat more of them than anywhere else in the world. That's bizarre. So, I, I mean, know, I knew, I probably knew rice is expense, right? Yeah, I knew India yeah. grew a lot of potatoes because there yeah, are a lot of potatoes too. in their cooking. That's absolutely right. Yeah, and they're I mean they're quite big on potato breeding in India as well. They're very you know they're one of the leaders for breeding potatoes that grow in semi-tropical countries. But I, it was exactly that process. That, you know, potatoes are everywhere, even places where you don't expect to find them, like China. And so I was very interested in how did this happen? You know, how did this food from one particular place become a food from absolutely everywhere? Then so you, that was you part have of it. The, the 18th century was the, 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 kind of the big discovery of, um, what would we call it, the, not interference with government interest in controlling what people ate. Yeah, or more, less, than, less controlling, but I would say the idea that what people ate was relevant to the government was born in the 18th century. So it was in the 18th century that states started thinking that it might be relevant to how strong and powerful a nation was if it had a well-fed population. So yeah, before that, how did I mean, they determine you know, that? I mean, well, that's they, a very they had good primitive question. nutrition, uh, uh, scientific tools to determine nutrition, right? That's a very good question. I mean, it was, but, and I, I, was something I was also been interested in. Is so calories, for example, were basically as a, as a as a measure of food's nutritive powers. That was invented in the 19th century or discovered, depending on how you look at it. So before the calorie, if you wanted to say, this food is more nourishing than that food, how did you prove it? You know, you didn't, you couldn't say, well, this food has X number of calories and that food has Y number of calories. So they had to try to demonstrate it in different ways. So it's a very good question, how they figured it out. I mean, ultimately, you asked people who ate something and you said, which is more sustaining? Which keeps you going longer? And so that's what they did. Yeah, ultimately. So even scientists. I mean, there, was, there were food scientists in the 18th century. But ultimately, if they wanted to figure out what foods were really nourishing, they looked at the people who ate them, and they said, well, those people eat potatoes, and they're more robust than the people who eat oats. So potatoes must be more nourishing. Okay, now, now tell us how potatoes got to Ireland and, 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 why, and why the two are so connected at the hip. Yeah, well, there are different stories about that. I mean, in Britain, there are lots of stories about you know, Sir Walter Raleigh, Francis Drake, somebody like that, bringing right, potatoes yeah. to Ireland, which don't doesn't really make a lot of sense since, as I said, potatoes come from Peru, and you know, Raleigh never got to Peru particularly. But <laughs> they probably came from the northwest corners of Spain, so it was probably sailors from Galicia. Okay, uh-huh. all right. Yeah, the climate would be more conducive to it, too, you know. Exactly. They really flourished in, in the Irish climate. But, right. but then all of a sudden they didn't. They got this awful disease that was sort of, sort of like a potato version of the pandemic that we're struggling with right now. Yeah, that's a very good analogy. And it kept, I mean, particularly because it also it kept coming back. It, you know, there were repeated bouts of it through the 1840s. So it wasn't like I one. Know, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, there were repeated fails of, failures of the harvest from 1845 through 1848. So it was, I mean, it was just like the Irish were just getting pummeled year after year after year. So that was why it was particularly, well, it was one of the reasons why it was so devastating in Ireland. The same parasite hit potatoes all across Western Europe. Oh, is that But right? it didn't okay. cause, yeah, it was affecting well, yeah, Belgium. The on it. Well, it was just just a matter exactly. that Ireland, for some reason, Ireland was the was the it was the predominant food. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I mean, it was people. Were, so when the potato crop failed in Ireland, it had a more catastrophic effect on the Irish than it did on, let's say, the Belgians. Now, you know, um, the, the, you make a connection um, in in the book about. Uh, social attitudes towards potato eaters. Uh, it, mm. It's been sort of up and down, hasn't it? I mean, in terms of, um, uh, of whether they they just somebody wants to disassociate themselves from potato as a food because it's a a, a poor food for the poor. I mean, it wasn't. Yeah, that's a, it right. Wasn't a compliment, right? Love. And then it changed. Yeah. Yeah, you're, that's absolutely right. It was an up and down process. So when potatoes first arrived in Europe in the 1500s, brought back by the Spanish, who were the people who um, introduced them to Europe, then, I mean, at first nobody except for ordinary people were paying much attention to them. So, you know, peasants liked them. You, they were very prolific. They grew very productively. The, nobody else was interested in them, so they didn't tend to get taxed. So you could keep, you know, you didn't have to hand over oh, a certain percentage. Oh, I like percentage. that detail. I never knew that. They were able to grow these and not, nobody was paying attention, so they didn't have to pay any tax on it. Exactly. They were, uh, I mean, there's a historian, there's a scholar who writes about this stuff, and he, he describes potatoes as kind of anarchists because they, you know, they... <laughs> This, you know, they disrupted the power of the state. But so, they, you know, they were sort of, and they spread, and they became popular in many parts of Europe. But and then in the 18th century, that was when states started to get interested in this idea of having a hearty population. And so, in the 18th century was a century of continual wars in Europe, and it became more and more important to Western European states, in particular, to have a big healthy population who could be conscripted into armies and navies and who could work in agriculture growing the food that these armies and navies needed etc and they latched onto the potato as this super nourishing food that was cheaper than wheat that was things that people could grow themselves it was you know an ideal food from that point of view and so potatoes were constantly being recommended and promoted and celebrated in the 18th century and Things yeah. changed in the 19th century, as you were saying. Ideas about what you needed to have a strong state changed. States were less interested in having huge populations of hearty peasants. That wasn't what you wanted. That was, you know, what backward companies that weren't going to succeed in the new capitalist economy. That was what they had. You didn't want a lot of peasants. You wanted industrial workers. And potatoes yeah, became associated with capitalist potato. I like that. <laughs> Yeah, potatoes were a sign of backwardness. You know, you have people who ate potatoes were sluggish. They weren't, they didn't have any get up and go. They just sat around and harvested their own crops. They didn't go and work in a textile factory. So potatoes were really, you know, they were really seen as being this food of backwardness. Were 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 potatoes the secret 
of of Britain's winning of the Thirty Year War or Thirty Years War or whatever it was? <laughs> well, I don't know if they were the secret, but they certainly were helpful in sustaining armies for you know for many centuries. I mean, going back to the Incas, you know, the in in Peru, I mean, the Inca soldiers also ate potatoes. So. I thought it was chocolate that made them <laughs> strong. <laughs> what, 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 one, of, one of the amazing things that we discovered when we were at the University of, uh, of Lima when talk, t- talking about potatoes, and they, they researched nutrition as, as well as seeds and ability to be able to grow. And uh, potatoes grow up to like 15,000 feet in, in the Andes, they told us. But they, but they're deficient in I think it's iron and zinc. No. So so they, zinc so zinc they, is so the they, big one. So yeah. they were they were so they were researching which of the potato varieties they had under their control were if you like the least objectionable when it when it came to dietary shortfall. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Oh, and they send seeds all over the world to test out um, development and, and um, mutations and whatnot to aid in, in the nutritional profile of potatoes. Oh, the other thing. Yeah, they have, the other yeah. thing. The other thing. I don't know if you remember this. They, they, they had this huge field, and they were. It was floodlit at night, and they were because they were trying to condition potatoes to be able oh, right. to tolerate light when when they typically don't do that very well. Hmm. Oh, there's so much experimentation going on, as you can imagine, in the Andes, you know. Well, yeah, and they have this, I mean, the world's foremost potato research center, I guess that might, I mean, that was probably That's where you were sitting, were. the International That's Potato exactly. Center. Yeah. That's, exact, yeah. That's, exact, that's exactly where we were. Now, they all fooled Thomas Malthus, right? Well, yeah, he's had some ideas, which he, had <laughs> he some certainly ideas, did which, have uh, ideas. Which, which, which were, shall we say, they were rather wrong. Yeah. Yes, and he didn't like potatoes at all because he thought potatoes encouraged them. surplus population. But exactly. where you oh, had potatoes... Well, okay, all right. Yeah, so I mean, he was very down on potatoes because he thought, I mean, he he saw Ireland as an example of everything bad. And <laughs> part of what made Ireland bad was that it was full of potatoes. And so people could eat potatoes and then they could have children and those children could eat potatoes and you'd get more and more people and they were just barely sustaining themselves on potatoes. But, you know, it wasn't really any good because they weren't the right kind of people. It was, you know, they were all part of a disaster as far as he was concerned. It he sounds pro- like our leaders today. <laughs> well, yes. It was, probably, so, it was probably all Cromwell's fault, right? I, What's I, that? I think, was, wasn't Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell somewhere involved in the introduction of potatoes in, into Ireland? Surely, surely he must have been. He had his finger in just about everything. Well, he was he was certainly in, I mean he was certainly behind the Ireland becoming an English colony. Although right. exactly at that period when that was happening in the 16 the 1600s the Irish were already eating potatoes and yeah. the uh, the English didn't think much of the potatoes then either. So they thought that again because potatoes were so prolific and so productive that the Irish could just laze around and not work very hard. That was that was the, the view of the English in the 17th century, and it was the view of the English in the 19th century. So, 
Well, the long history of seeing seeing potatoes as facilitating people being lazy because they're so prolific. Oh, yeah. I I wondered about that. What was it? Sluggish blood or something you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, in the 19th century, during this period when what, what economists felt states needed and what states felt they needed in terms of the right kind of population was a bunch of, you know, a population of industrial workers, of people who could go and work in industry, and that was what you needed. You didn't want peasants tilling the land, really. You wanted these Mm -hmm. highly tuned workers. And that coincided with a very negative view from nutritionists of the potato. And by then, nutritionists had come up with a whole technical language for talking about food. So they had they were starting to develop the language of calories and proteins and carbohydrates. And so they could look at foods and they could quantify the content of protein and they could break foods down. They hadn't discovered vitamins yet. So foods like Tomatoes, for example, were seen as being totally pointless. You know, they contributed nothing to your diet because they had no calories at all. It was viewed as poisonous when it was first introduced to um, Italy and to uh, to Europe. Yeah, well, more than that, but... Yeah, by the 19th century, more than that, it wasn't that people thought they were poisonous. They just thought they didn't... They contributed nothing to your diet, people thought. Mm -hmm. But, But the people... So nutritionists were going around in the 19th century quantifying different foods in terms of what they delivered to the diet. And the potato was seen as delivering nothing positive at all. And it it was seen as being a stodgy food that just made you into a stodgy person. And there, there was this wonderful description from a Dutch nutritionist who said, if you eat too many potatoes, you get sluggish potato blood. Yeah, that's what I was asking mm. you about. That's funny. So no, <laughs> yeah, it was so a wonderful no phrase. Had, no one had yet discovered French fries, huh? <laughs> well, people were frying potatoes before then, although not the Incas. I mean, they didn't fry potatoes in Peru because people in the Andes didn't do deep frying. No, I guess no they well, they, they ate uh, really high up in the Andes. Uh, they had a method of, of, of freezing the potatoes in the ground. I mean, the potatoes froze in the ground, and, and, and they ate those. Yes, so that, so I, I used have you had that? Did, have you just called chuño? Did you try it when you were there? I know. I didn't try it. I, I did try guinea pig, and I wasn't real happy with that. <laughs> yes, that's, that's sort of, it's a bit of a challenge, the guinea pig. I think when you see a grilled on a plate with his little feet sticking up in there. Yeah, the I know. <laughs> no, I thought the story of the, um, of, of, of the uh, what's his name, in, um, in Paris in the the, the tombstone you have in the oh, book. Parmentier. Yeah, Parmentier. Oh, yeah, Parmentier. Yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah. thought that um, was interesting. They're not sure if he did all those things everybody's credited with or not, right? Yeah, I mean, I th- he certainly didn't introduce potatoes to France, but he certainly popularized them in the 18th century, that's for sure. And I think it's really lovely the way people continue to be putting these little offerings of potatoes on his tomb. Yeah, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. I said the, the rats must be really happy. <laughs> really, yes. Potatoes. <laughs> now, um, un- the undercurrent for this book that should not be missed is basically, um, well, of course, we've talked a little bit about the socioeconomic one, but the political um, issue of individual uh, responsibility and 
um, selection and freedom as opposed to the state's control is an underlying um, theme in your book. Yes, so I've, I'm, I've got quite interested in why it is we have such an ambivalent attitude towards dietary advice. So, you know, people, on the one hand, people hate being told to cut back their drinking, to eat more fruit, that they should reduce their salt intake. And, I mean, there was, I think, a really clear example of this was what happened in New York City. When New York with the sugary drinks. <laughs> yeah. You know, when they tried to say, oh, you couldn't, you know, they didn't want to, they, you shouldn't be able to buy 32-ounce Coca-Cola. So, you know, sort of fast, <laughs> these huge sugary drinks. They were trying to say, well, they shouldn't be sold. It was a huge backlash, which was organized around the idea that this was an assault on people's freedom. And, you know, you had the right to buy as large a soft drink as you wanted. So there's, on the one hand, this sense that people want to be left completely to make their own dietary mistakes, right? Except but on the for other the hand, one area, yeah. which is one that's always in the news now, is food safety. Exactly. It's exactly that. So on the one hand, we think it's none of the state's business to tell us what to eat. And, you know, people get very upset if they're, you know, told that they should eat more or less of that, this or that. But at the same time, exactly as you said, there's a sort of contradictory thing going on, which is that people expect the government to regulate food to make sure it's safe. They absolutely think that the state has a role. I mean, I think it has a role in, but I mean, I think this is generally viewed that the state has a role in ensuring food safety and making sure that the food is safe and also that other people ought to eat healthily because if other people all suffer from terrible obesity and get diabetes, it's going to be a drain on the economy and it's, you know, not fair on everyone else. So there's this very contradictory attitude that yeah, I think is, people hold. I was interested in that. I get a sense of a book here. I, I get a sense of a book. Another one. A, bo- a, book, well, a, book, about, a book about soft drinks. Well, I mean, there's a lot to be said about that. Although, actually, I think Marion Nessel, who's written some, she's written some really good stuff on this. She's, yeah, she's written. We've, we've known her for a long time. And she just, yeah, I think she's written. I just got another book. I can't remember what it was. We just got a we just got a little book of hers a called, a, book. called oh. Ask. With, with the questions that people always ask her, ask, which ask is Marianne. interesting. interesting. Oh well, what a great topic! Because I think she's written some really lovely stuff about. I mean, about. Soft drinks and Coca-Cola in particular. So, yeah, she's got some really interesting... Oh, she's very... She's very snipey. (laughs) Don't cross her. She's not well on patience. I I, I only heard her give a talk. You know, I don't know her as a person, but she certainly... Yeah, she seems sharp and like somebody, if she wanted to demolish you, she could. (laughs) She... (laughs) I have a feeling feeling she might have already done that a few times. (laughs) <laughs> so where are we going, Rebecca Earl, with this, uh, especially with the food control and how food affects us in the near future? I mean, everybody's into this uh, food security, food insecurity. Everything's happening now and here in the economic uh, parts of, of our socioeconomic condition. And I'm sure in England the same. Um, so where are we going to go? Well, it's an interesting thinking about what the pandemic has 
has changed, if anything, about how people eat. And there was this flourishing of, for people who had gardens, of people growing their own food during the periods of lockdown and that people got interested in where their food came from because there was a you know a period when it was there was there were people right. were very worried about food shortages so there was a kind of little outburst it seemed to me in you know in April and May where people started to get really interested in thinking oh if our food's coming from the other side of the world is that you know can we rely on it right. but i mean it seems to me that that people are now people are getting bored with the pandemic and they're you know they're sort of saying oh i don't care you know let's just go back to normal well so i think whatever lessons well i agree with you completely about that but the market i think is never going to go back to what it was i think that people have they they take to i had a funny sociology professor in college that she used to start out with um an act and then a repeater she eventually got to mores and uh, you know habit and mores and so forth and so mm-hmm. on patterns um and and i think that this is what's been happening for since early march here and i think that the uh, um, the restaurants are never, when they're allowed to open, are never going to be, if they can open, will never be the same. Uh, I think that I've talked, interviewed so many chefs and restaurateurs about how um, it, it's, it's, they can't sustain it uh, and still keep safety for their employees and their guests. And then um, the other thing is people have become accustomed to, to doing all their direct-to-consumer shopping. And a lot of companies that never, ever did to-your-door delivery retail uh, have had to call on that market because the other market right now of restaurants and chefs is non-existent. And yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a change. Yeah, I think that could I, be a huge change. Yeah, I mean, it's been an absolutely devastating experience for for the hospitality industry. And one of the things I've noticed here, and I, I think this is happening, this, I think the same thing, I mean, I'm aware of this happening a bit in New York City or places like that, is that very high-end restaurants have now gone into you know, sort of takeaway food. Right. So, and we've got, we've got a Michelin-starred restaurant in a nearby town. So now you know more than you ever wanted to know about potatoes. <laughs> I love potatoes. Uh, and, uh, they have a fascinating history, of Rebecca proves. And, 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 and the opportunity to obtain some of the world's best seafood. Oh, from, yeah, well. From, from off, yeah. off Half Moon Bay in California. I know. Really, I'm constantly amazed. constantly amazed and impressed by how creative our industry, the food and beverage industry, has gotten out with the COVID-19 yeah. crisis. And there's so much creativity. Yes. And there's a whole lot more than seafood available from Four Star. Yes. So, 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 do, so do, do get in touch, browse their website. You'll, you'll be thrilled at what you can get and uh, how quickly you and get everything. it. Yeah, and how quickly how quick you can get it as well. So anyway... How quickly you can get it? Well, how quickly you'll get us same time, same place next week. And until then... Bye-bye.